Hi everyone and welcome to Heroes and Howlers and the Rest is History. I'm Mikey Robbins. I'm a bit of a history nerd, but my mate Paul Wilson. Hi, everybody. Paul's a proper historian, all the way from Oxford. Thanks, Mikey. Okay, folks, so here's the show. It's about the unsung heroes, the bizarre twists of fate, those weird bits of history that have surreptitiously changed the course of mankind. Yeah, actually, mate, it's also about the cock ups. (laughs) Those howlers, the moments of madness, they're sometimes tragic, sometimes comical, that have made the world what it is today. Okay, folks, welcome to the show, or should I say all aboard, because today we're taking to the high seas and following up on a number of requests we've received, well, ever since we did that white ship app, isn't it, Mikey, we are with England's Henry I and his son William. That's right, Paul, and also to you know, the massive Batavia mess-up of 1629. And like I said, we've had a number of requests on this, asking maybe if we could take a look at a couple more heroes and howlers of the ocean. So we thought we'd put a few together and see if we can bring us all the way up to the present. Right. So first up, Mikey, you've got another 17th century cock-up of a disaster, but this time we're in Sweden and we're on board the Vasa. Yes, mate, the Vasa. Look, it's a sad fact to note that when it comes to the Vasa, the words maiden voyage can be seen as something of a gross compliment. <laughs> okay. When she was launched, I mean, to be fair, and this is on the 10th of August, 1628, mm. she was probably the most powerfully armed warship in the world, brandishing 64 bronze cannons. All right, so to give everyone an idea, that's yeah, that's bigger than, what, Henry VIII's great flop from the previous century, the Mary Rose, isn't it? In fact, it's bigger than anything in Elizabeth or James I's fleet. Mate, bigger and more powerful than anything in Europe. A truly massive ship for the time. But not just that, it's also covered with intricate carvings and wooden statues, extolling not just the Swedish royal family, but also the noble deeds of the man who commissioned this marvellous maritime feat of engineering. A guy called King Gustav Adolphus, who's strangely known as Gustav II Adolf. Mm. Now, now, mate, on the day of its launch, there were hundreds of proud patriotic onlookers to watch her set sail. But not the king. He was actually away fighting the Poles. Which, to be fair, the Swedes did quite a lot of back in those days, didn't they? Yes, mate, they were constantly at war with the Poles. But anyway, when the ship set sail, he was painfully unaware of his new flagship's dangerous shortcomings. But here's the thing, mate. What was supposed to be a day of Swedish pride and possibly the crowning achievement of King Gustav's reign turned very ugly when just 20 minutes after setting sail, mm-hmm. the vessel rolled over on a port side and promptly sank. 20 minutes. Yes, mate. And it took 35 lives with her. According to some observant onlookers, the vessel had not even travelled one full nautical mile. This was a cock-up of unbelievable proportions. And, well, like most grandiose disasters, it started from the top all the way down to a tiny yet terrifyingly, dare I say, schoolboy error that would have even made my old long-suffering woodwork teacher howl with displeasure. Okay, three years before the launch, King Gustav had ordered the building of four ships. Right. And he wanted two vessels of a medium size with a 108-foot keel length and two much bigger ships with a keel length of a staggering 135 feet. Mm. But here's the thing, mate. Like a lot of wealthy clients, he keeps changing the order. (laughs) All right. 
First off, he hears that his rival, the Danish king, was building a warship that had two as opposed to the standard single gun deck. Mm. Now, Gustav did what every bad neighbour does when the guy next door builds a deck. He has to build a bigger one. <laughs> right. So variations and new orders were given to start work on what would eventually become the unfortunate doom ship, the Vassa. However, in the case to placate Gustav's deck envy, no precise or specific calculations or plans were created or used. Ah. I know this sounds like a tragedy waiting to happen, <laughs> but the boat builder, a guy called Henrik Hybertson, yeah. he was a man of considerable experience. And with the king breathing down his neck to deliver what would be the most lethal ship ever launched from a European port, Henrik concluded that the best course of action was to just use the standard practice he had used to make the ships of 108 feet mm -hmm. and then just readjust to the larger requirements. Basically, his plan was just go bigger. <laughs> right. Now, even during the construction process, it was evident the ship was becoming, well, dangerously wide at the middle compared to its base. Now, I'm no expert in ship engineering, Mikey, but I'm guessing this is sort of along the same lines as a, a sumo wrestler trying to tightrope walk along a balance beam. Exactly, mate. And you, you would have thought that a boat builder with decades of experience, you know, like Henrik Hobbitson had, he'd have been aware of this perilous shape that the, the vast was undertaking. But here's the thing. He sadly dies during the building of the ship, ah. and the king, along with his lead sailor, a guy called Admiral Fleming, mm. went full steam ahead, all guns blazing, to get the Vassa into the water. Ah. Okay, let's not forget that the top-heavy nature of the ship was made even worse by the addition of considerably more extremely heavy guns than she was ever, ever envisaged to carry. Extra guns, but surely they would have had some sort of float test to make sure she could still stay upright. Yes, they did, mate. But let's just say this. Yeah, even for the early 17th century, this test was barely anything you'd consider to be called scientific. Right. But here's the thing. While the ship was docked and already looking a bit more than worryingly wobbly, Admiral Fleming had the ship's ill-fated commander, a guy called Captain Hansen, oversee something that was called and I'm not making this up, a lurch test. A lurch test. Yeah, yeah this involved getting 30 <laughs> men to run from side to side across the boat's upper deck. Mm -hmm. It only took three goes before the ship started rocking dangerously and the test was called off. <laughs> However, the king was desperate to get his new wonder ship to sea and seeing as the Swedes' long-term hostilities towards Poland had once again descended into outright fighting, no one seemed to have the gumption to tell old Gustav that maybe, just maybe, launching the ship at, at this stage of its, its development was not such a good idea. All right, but if it's still really wobbly, couldn't they just add a bit more ballast like they did on the other ships at the time? Well, here's the thing, mate. The Vassa already had ballast. It had 120 tonnes of ballast. <laughs> OK. There was no more room <laughs> left for any more ballast. And it was calculated that if any more weight was added to the ship, that it would displace so much water that its lower gun deck, remember it's got two gun decks, would become in danger of actually being almost level with the waterline. Ah, which is exactly what happened to Henry VIII's Mary Rose. So on top of this whole weight and armament debacle that was going on just before the launch, there was another major and incredibly stupid problem that goes back probably to the very first few days of construction. And I've got to be honest, it must go down in history as one of the ultimate WTF moments in maritime engineering. <laughs> okay. See, to build a ship that large, the Swedish Navy enlisted shipbuilders from other parts of Europe. Mm -hmm. And being the Kenny Swedes that they were, they looked to the craftsmen of one of the great naval powers at the time, the Dutch. Mm. And more specifically, the great shipbuilders that plied their trade out of the city of Amsterdam. Mm. Now, we know this because archaeologists discovered four wooden rulers that were used in the construction of the Vassa. Mm. And, Paul, this is where things get weird. Okay. Two of the rulers were of the standard Swedish length, but another two were actually 
Well, they were in what was known as the Amsterdam foot length. <laughs> this Amsterdam foot, well, it's pretty much one inch shorter than the Swedish foot. Ooh. Actually, the Swedish vote or foot, well, it could vary between 10 and 13 inches, depending on which era or which part of the city you're actually doing your damn woodwork. <laughs> but what about these two they found? These rules were of the 11-inch variety, so they were one inch shorter than the Swedish ones. Ouch. This one-inch discrepancy between these two rules, look, it doesn't sound like that much at first. But when you expand that discrepancy and take into consideration that various workmen were assigned to concentrate solely on constructing one particular section of the Vassa, mm. well, it's not a huge leap of the imagination to hazard a guess that the port side of the ship was considerably thicker than the starboard side. Yes. Actually, Paul, it was catastrophically thicker. Which brings us back to the 10th of August, 1628. Mm. Captain Hansen gave orders for the ship to leave the docks at the naval station in Alvesnaben. Okay. There was a light breeze, the sails were set, and the gun ports were opened. Mm. Of course they were opened. They were open to perform a celebratory salute. Beautiful. And uh, an initial gust of wind caused it to roll to port, but Ooh. this was quickly remedied to starboard until she hit a gap between the bluffs and a stronger gust of wind rolled the inherently unstable vessel back over onto the port side where water rushed in the open gun ports, quickly filling the vessel with water and sinking the ship, barely 1,300 metres into what was supposed to be her triumphant maiden voyage. All right, Mikey, so that was the Vassa in the 17th century. And where are you going to take us to next? Mate, we're going to stay in the age of sail. But, Paul, here's a quick question. In what year did the last European sail ship transport cargo around Cape Horn? Ooh, around Cape Horn. Um, well, so 19th century, obviously, maybe. No, 20th century, because you've got Eric Newby, haven't you, with the last grain race. Uh, well, 1920s? Actually, mate, it was as late as 1949. Oof. And the ship in question was the Pamir. The Pamir. And, and apart from being absolutely beautiful, and folks, we will post some pics of her on the socials, she actually found herself involved in, in some of the stranger dramas of commerce and conflict in the 20th century. Now, Mikey, just before you go on, the yeah. Pamir, that's usually a name we associate with mountains, not ships. Mountains, whereabouts? Mountains, you know, in northern Pakistan next to the Himalayas. Okay, Paul, Paul, put the maps away. <laughs> oh, okay. All Today right. we are talking about the Pamir the ship. Pamir the ship, I'm all aboard. Okay, she was built in Hamburg at the Blom and Voss shipyards. Mm -hmm. Now, they're the same shipyards that would go on to build the Bismarck, as well mm. as many of the versions of the World War II U-boats that we all know about. Okay. But back in 1905, they built the Pamir. Now, she had a steel hull. And she was 114.5 metres long. All right. She weighed over 3,000 tonnes fully loaded. But the thing you noticed first was the, her massive three main masts, 51.2 mm -hmm. metres high. She could carry 3,800 square metres of sail. Oof. And with that, she was capable of reaching speeds up to 16 knots. Nice. And could cruise all day at around half that speed. Now, here's the thing. In the years leading up to World War One, she was used by the Lights Company in Germany to cross the Atlantic to trade in Chilean nitrate. Chilean nitrate. Now, don't, don't they use that for explosives, Mikey? <laughs> yes, mate. And in fact, Chile controlled about 80% of the world's nitrate from around about the late 1890s. And by 1914, we do know that at least one-fifth of that nitrate was going into arms production. Oh, of course, yeah, as part of the build-up to World War One. Yeah, well, that's what she was doing in the years leading up to the war. In fact, she made at least five trips from Chile to Hamburg as part of the German armament program. But in October 1914, 
She was actually in the Canary Islands at the port of Santa Cruz de la Palma. And, well, she stayed there until the armistice in, in 1918. Right. At which point she was given as part of a war reparations deal to the Italians. What did the Italians do with her? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> okay. She arrives in Naples in 1920. And, well, to be fair, she was a vessel that harked back to her previous era. And the Italians couldn't actually put a crew together big enough to sail her around. And so she was laid up until the lights company, back in Germany, bought her back for £7,000 in 1924. And then after that, they sold her to the Finnish shipping company, Gustav Eriksson, in 1931, when she was actually used as part of the Australian wheat trade. Oh, which is what I was talking about at the beginning, wasn't it, with the Eric Newby last grain race? So the next time the Palmyra enters the history books is in 1941. Mm-hmm. She's in the New Zealand port of Wellington when she's seized as a prize of war by the New Zealand government. But hang on, if she's no longer a German ship and now she's Finnish... Yes, but although not a fully-fledged member of the Axis, Finland was seen as being aligned with ah. Germany. Well, aligned enough to help yourself to a ship anyway. <laughs> right. During World War II, the Palmyra sailed on 10 commercial voyages under the New Zealand flag, mm-hmm. including five to San Francisco, three to Vancouver and one to Sydney. So these are what, commercial operations rather than part of the military? Yes, but she was a merchant ship, but she was once stalked by a Japanese submarine. <laughs> but the sight of a sailship cruising along gently through the Pacific was apparently not considered to be a, a suitable target by the Japanese sub-captain. Right. Now, after the war, she sailed back to Europe after stopping in Australia, then via Cape Horn in 1948, and then back to Wellington. There's still a plaque commemorating her in Wellington Harbour. All right, so that's got us to 1948. But didn't you say it was 49 that holds the record? Okay, here's what happened. The Kiwis feel guilty. Or maybe they're just being polite because they're Kiwis. <laughs> well, they returned the Palmyra to the Ericsson line and she set sail to Port Victoria on the Spencer Gulf to load up on Australian grain and then set off on a 128-day journey to Falmouth, England, which meant that on the 11th of July, 1949, mm-hmm. she became the last great sail ship to carry cargo around Cape, Cape Horn. Horn. Nice. Yeah, I'm afraid it doesn't end there though, mate. Oh. By 1951, she's almost broken up the scrap, only mm. to be refurbished and then once again used as a trade ship on the Atlantic run to South America. Mm. In 1952, she takes cement to Brazil and brings iron ore back to Hamburg. Ah, Hamburg again. Yeah, but this company almost goes bankrupt before a consortium of 50 German ship owners buy in. And for the next five years, her main destination is Argentina, but she's not making a profit. Mm. The German government won't chip in for her upkeep. Look, it's seen as more of a costly exercise in nostalgia than a genuine business endeavour. Right. She falls into disrepair and then disaster strikes. Okay. It's August the 10th, 1957. Now, she left Buenos Aires with a cargo of some 3,780 tonnes of barley, Mm -hmm. a crew of 86 But 52 of these were just mere cadets. Plus, her her regular captain, a guy called Herman Eggers, he'd fallen ill and was replaced by Captain Johannes Dybisch. Now, Dybisch had actually sailed on the Palmyra as a young man. and, And he had commanded large sailing ships. But look, these were just training ships. He had very little or no expertise commanding a large cargo carrying sail ship. He was also a bit of a harsh disciplinarian who did not take advice easily. And here's the problem. The cargo of barley had been stored incorrectly. Also, there was a dock strike in Buenos Aires. Now, that meant the ship was already behind schedule. So, Debish decided to let the inexperienced crew, remember that they're mostly cadets, take care of the trimming or correct storage of the barley. 
it was stored loose in the hold, with only 225 tonnes of sacks of grain sitting on top to hold it in place. Mm. He even allowed the ballast tanks to be filled with grain. So desperate was he to leave on time and make the voyage profitable. Okay. Then on the 21st of September, the ship was caught by Hurricane Carrie. Mm. It was later reported that the ship's radio officer had not heard the hurricane warnings because he was being consumed by other duties. Once again, another money-saving measure by the captain. Ah. Other ships in the area would later talk about how frantically they had tried to contact the Palmyre in the hours leading up to the storm, but with no response. Mm. As the weather hit, she listed severely to port. Her cargo shifted in the hold. The list becomes more severe, and then water poured into unsecured hatches. Ah. After a nine-day search, only four crew and two cadets were found alive. Mm. None of the officers or the captain survived. Wow. So it was hard to give a definitive answer as to why she'd sunk. But a later commission landed on the theory of the shifting cargo being the most profitable cause. Mm. And sadly, this voyage proved to be her most profitable since World War II. Most profitable? Yes, mate, due to a massive insurance payout. <laughs> Okay, we've had two stories of the sea, but Paulie, you've got one last cock up for us? Well, yes and no, Mikey, because you see, my last one is a little bit different. You know, first of all, I've actually got a submarine for you rather than a ship. And on top of that, I still haven't quite decided if we've got a cock up on our hands or rather some Cold War smoke and mirrors at their finest. You see, we're in the 1960s, the Cold War is at its height, you know, the Bay of Pigs, Space Race, Vietnam War, all that kind of thing. But you've got to remember, by this stage, it's also no longer as simple as the West versus the rest. You know, sure, the USA and the Soviet Union, they're still the very much the dominant protagonists. But there's also a very important third element, a sort of side angle, if you like, and one that is still has massive repercussions to this day. I'm going to say China. China, you got it in one, because of course, in 1961, that was the year of the great Sino-Soviet split with China denouncing the new developments within Soviet communism as the work of revisionist traitors. Traitors. Exactly. And so suddenly the world is a whole lot more complicated a place. Sort of a tripolar instead of a bipolar situation. <laughs> yes. And from out of these increasingly choppy waters in 1968, something of a tsunami by the name of K129. I'm guessing we're not talking about Doctor Who here. <laughs> That's right, Maggie. We're not talking about K9, K129. It's not some kind of TARDIS. It's a Russian submarine, a nuclear submarine at that, and it's out on patrol down in the deepest depths of the Pacific Ocean. It's the end of February 1968, and the K129, the nuclear submarine, is on war patrol. Patrol, not manoeuvres. Right, supposedly nothing untoward is happening just yet. You know, no alarm bells are ringing, no red alerts. And it's commanded by a guy called Vladimir Ivanovich Kobzar, a captain of the first rank, you know, with an unblemished record. In fact, this submarine is coming off the back of two successful 70-day patrols in the North Pacific in 1967. But it's now February 1968, and it's on its new assignment, which is scheduled to end in May. The same year. Right, and like I said, everything's going well. On February the 24th, it's surfaced and it's radioed back to base in Kamchatka. In fact, this submarine's been sending its encrypted radio messages every couple of days with its position like clockwork. But then, suddenly, everything stops. 
So where is it by now? Well, this is the key, Mikey. When it sends the last of its radio messages, it's approximately 1,600 miles northwest of Hawaii. Okay. But, as I said, context now being lost. It goes through to the end of February, into the beginning of March, and the Soviets, they're getting pretty worried. And there's a good reason for that worry, actually, Mikey, because that same year, 1968, there are three other mysterious incidents with submarines Disappearances, in fact, of the Israeli submarine INS Dakar, the French submarine the Minerve, and the American submarine the USS Scorpion. So what about your submarine, Paulie? Has there been some sort of crash? Well, at this stage, nobody knows. But like I said, the Soviet authorities are worried. And in fact, as the days go on, a real panic sets in. So much so (laughs) that they're forced to do the unthinkable and ask the US Navy for help. And that really would have been a a last resort. (laughs) Correct, right? But by this stage, they've they've run out of options. Nothing's coming up on their radars. So they go through a couple of back channels and sound out if by any chance the US, with their superior SOSUS, sonar system have they by any chance picked up anything unusual right but <laughs> yeah of course the u.s aren't going to give anything away right. yeah, so they just shake their heads oh sorry not heard a peep and then desperately rush back through their own recording to see if they've missed anything and sure enough on march the 8th they find two small unidentified sonic events bingo right and not just that mikey these events have shown up to have taken place way way deep below the surface submarine territory (laughs) exactly and most important of all they've taken place at the coordinates of 40 degrees north 180 degrees east which is basically halfway between hawaii and Midway Island. Ah, Midway. Right. So the US Navy, yeah, they've pinpointed the site, and their boffins, yeah, they're pretty sure the events must have been some sort of mini explosions, almost certainly on board a submarine. But there's one piece of the jigsaw that doesn't quite fit. You see, if this is the Russian sub, the K129, what's it doing so far off course you know why would it be taking up a position so close to midway hawaii you know pearl harbor could it have been some sort of attack <laughs> well that's the thing mikey no you see because the missiles on board the k129 they would need to be launched from much much further away these are long-range missiles we're talking about we well, yeah, we set trajectories it's not like you hit the old-fashioned cannon where you can go up a bit down a bit until you hit the right spot these Soviet missiles, to achieve maximum accuracy, they need to be fired from a precise distance, which for their range would need to be much, much further away. So what's going on? <laughs> well, here's the thing. Yes, this position, 40 degrees north, 180 degrees east, it's completely wrong for Russian missiles, but it's exactly the right range if you're a Chinese Sub submarine armed with the shorter range missiles they, the Chinese, are using. So it's not the K 129. Now I'm confused. All right, well, let's go back to that beginning, shall we, Mikey, with the Sino Soviet split in the late 50s and into the 60s. Now that split all happened because in 1956, Nikita Khrushchev he denounces Stalin and Stalinism in the speech you know, on the cult of personality and its consequences, and thus begins the de Stalinization of the USSR. <laughs> but of course, Mao and the Chinese leadership, they're terrified. You know, the whole point of Mao, the whole point of the Cultural Revolution <laughs> is the cult of personality. They rely on it 100%. 
So what you're saying in retaliation to that, the USSR wants to stitch up China. Well, like I said, by this stage, the Cold War had become something of a three-sided Mexican standoff. And the USSR, yes, you're right, Mike, it's feeling pretty isolated. It's worried that it's losing the upper hand to the USA. And in the Politburo, members like Andropov, they're worried that the new leader, Brezhnev, he's becoming too soft. Now, of course, no one is saying anything outright at the time, but rumours are going around that the KGB, it either wants to up the ante with the US, you know, let them know that the USSR is still a force to be reckoned with, or, and this is what I meant at the beginning about the possible smoke and mirrors strategy, maybe, just maybe the KGB could orchestrate a situation whereby the US turns its heat on China and gives the USSR a bit of breathing space to regroup. You know, the old get your two enemies fighting against each other and automatically your own hand is suddenly strengthened. Uh, OK, uh, right, yeah, that could make sense. But what sort of evidence do we have for either option? OK, so let's just recap on what we do know. It's 1968 and the K129 has gone out to sea. Now, normally a submarine of this size would have on board around 85 crew members. Certainly that's how many were on board on the previous patrols. Critically, however, the crew manifest, which should have been logged at base before the submarine set out, that manifest went missing, well, according to the Russian authorities at the time. Now, the official statement after the event, when the Soviets admitted that a sub had been lost and the sub lying at the bottom of the ocean was definitely theirs, that statement listed that 87 men went down with the submarine. But in 1998, when President Yeltsin revisited the sinking of the K-129 to commemorate the lost war heroes from the Cold War, he declared that 98 souls were lost on that day, 14 of whom, he said, had tragically only been newly rotated on board. Oh, Yeltsin said that. He probably had a skinful. <laughs> Yes, he may have, but there are a couple of other anomalies that really don't stack up and, in my opinion, make this one worth a closer look. OK. OK, so first up, the wreck itself. Now, as we said, the Russians, they didn't know where their sub had ended up, but the Americans were pretty confident. So in August 1968, they sent the USS Halibut to the located coordinates to conduct a formal deep-sea identification. Two things, Halibut's a lame name for a Navy ship, <laughs> but also, to, is it the K129 they find? It certainly is, Mikey. It's sunk to the seabed by this stage, of course, and it's some 4,900 metres below the surface. But there it is, in position, a direct match for the earlier coordinates for the two explosions. Now, 4,900 metres, Paulie, <laughs> that's what? We're talking hell deep. <laughs> yes, mate. So deep, in fact, that there's no way the machinery on board the USS Halibut would allow for any sort of recovery at such a massive depth and they just have to settle for taking some pictures and the russians they still don't know the whereabouts of this final resting place so there's no chance of them doing recovery either correct but these pictures the americans have taken they've captured some pretty intriguing images and the u.s particularly the cia they're desperate to know more they want to haul this thing up to the surface to get a better look but they know that that sort of operation now would need to be so massive, so obvious... It would give away the game to the Russians. And cause a massive diplomatic incident, correct? So, mate, what do they do? <laughs> well, this is where it does all get a bit crazy. They bide their time, the CIA, for a couple of years, and then in the 1970s, they come up with Operation 
Project Azorian. Go on. Right. Well, you know Howard Hughes? Yeah, mate, the aviator. I think we've all heard of him. <laughs> right. Well, Hughes, obviously, he's a multimillionaire by this stage, and he's made his fortune on the back of a hundred <laughs> different wacko schemes, but most of them including mining or drilling for precious metals. Yeah. So the CIA, they persuade Hughes to act as their front. And in 1974, he declares that his company is going on a new mission in search of manganese nodules on the deep ocean floor of the Pacific. Manganese nodules? I know, sounds weird, but that's what they say they're going for. And while he's out there building his platforms and all sorts of rigs, the CIA, they launch their recovery machinery down onto the seabed and under the cover of drilling for manganese, these contraptions are able to raise the K-129 back up towards the surface. And this is historical fact, not some Hollywood blockbuster, right? Cast iron, Mikey. There's CIA papers to prove it and budget receipts for approaching $800 million, which is, yeah, $4 billion in today's money. Okay, I believe you. So, so what do they find? Well, sadly, the K129, as they're raising it up from the ocean bed, it breaks in half. So they can only manage to salvage one third of the vessel with the rest sinking back down to the ocean floor. But they are able to establish that missiles on board had been activated into launch position. And they also recover belongings and photographs from various crewmen, some of which did not match the original 85 crew members who were supposed to have been on board. But it's definitely the Russian K-129. It's not the Chinese. Definitely not the Chinese. So what do they think actually happened? <laughs> well, of course, we'll never know the exact story, Mikey. And, you know, and the Russians aren't prepared to shed any more light on it, that's for sure. But the most likely scenario is this. The extra crewmen, the other ones we were talking about, the who Yeltsin on it, they were probably some sort of elite KGB commando. Now, whether they were a rogue unit or they were there with the blessing of the hardliners in the Politburo we talked about, we'll never know. Either way, though, it seems they took control of the sub and they steered for a new course to the final coordinates that we do know, halfway between Hawaii and Midway, and that's where they prepared the first missiles to fire. But the original captain of the K-129, that old commander Kobzar I mentioned, he must have had enough time to thwart the hijackers and activate one of the fail-safe countermand devices which are fitted you know, to all nuclear subs and triggered if there is ever an attempt to launch a missile without full clearance and authorization. So is that why the US picked up two sonic events on their sonars. Exactly. Yeah, the first would have been the missile being fired by the trigger, with the second being the immediate counter device which cancels the missile launch. And in this case, with such a blast that the force of the explosion causes irreparable damage and the sub obviously sinks to the bottom of the ocean. And these findings are all there as part of the CIA's stealth operation, Project Azorian. Right. Look, we'll never know if it was all part of a plan to frame the Chinese or whether the Russian power brokers were intent on provoking attack for their own ends. But in terms of the K-129 being locked and loaded, sent off course, hundreds of kilometres out of position, unauthorised behind enemy lines, that much we do know. So what you're saying, Paulie, is that The Hunt for the Red October and, and Crimson Tide, what, those movies might not be as far-fetched as they appear? Well, it's certainly something to think about. All right, folks, so there you go. Any questions, any comments, just drop us a line on all your social media. Same as usual, your Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whichever you prefer. That's right, and always the same handle, at The Rest Is Hist. The Rest Is Hist. And you'll find all that in the show notes. And whenever you're listening, don't forget to like, subscribe, comment on whichever platform you happen to use. It's always great to get your feedback. Yeah, keep it all coming. We're having lots of fun out there. Lots of extra stories. And maps. There's always more maps. <laughs> right. Right.